story. There was a young family in Thailand, father and a mother, they had about a three-year-old boy. They were going to church, I think the mother was baptized, the father was not. And then the father got into drinking and smoking and created such a problem in the home that he left. And so they were separated. In due time, the father came to want to see his son. And so he asked the mother, can he come and visit me for a week? The mother said, okay, okay. Wasn't sure quite what to think, so she didn't want him around that influence of drinking and smoking, but she let him go. And so he went to his father's home, and the father started to pull out a cigarette. Now, what do you suppose a three-year-old boy would say? Daddy, can we pray? What happened to the father when he said, can we pray? It stopped it right there. It didn't end it, though. The father wanted to smoke again. Every time the father started to smoke, the three-year-old boy would say, Daddy... Let's pray. That's all he would say. And then the father wanted to start taking some drinks. And every time the boy would see the father get ready to take a drink, he would say, Daddy, let's pray. At the end of the week, what had happened to the father? No drinking, no smoking. He had to let the boy go home, but he asked the mother, I need him. Will you let him stay with me another week? I said, okay. And so she let him stay another week. And what do you suppose happened to the father? He was so happy. He started thinking about getting back home with his wife. And before long, he went home and he and his wife and child went back to church. Amen. And eventually the father was baptized. Amen. I want to read to you a text. Because we know in the past, children have preached evangelistic sermons when adults were not able to do because of the law. In the end, we expect it will happen again. But in Psalm 127, mark this in your Bible. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. What does that mean, do you think? Children are like arrows in the hand of the Lord. Are these children going to be doing the bidding of the Lord in the end? And what does it say in verse 5? What do you think that means? They're going to speak with the enemies at the gate. Children are going to speak with the enemies at the gate. Are the children going to be doing the work of the Lord in the end then? Yes. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same as you and I are, they're going to be doing their work as well. Isn't that a, a wonderful thing to think of? As you're raising your children for the Lord, you're preparing them to meet the enemy in the gate. Here we are in the end of time. Do you believe it? Amen. Has God's message or messengers ever had an easy time in earth's history? 
Have the messengers always been well received? Seldom. Isn't that true? The messengers have seldom been received. The messages have not been often received. Do we expect that things are going to be much better in the end? If that be true, what is it that God has to do for his messengers? Who's he going to call? Is he going to call those who are talented? Or is he going to prepare those he calls? And that's what we think is going to have to happen. Not going to be the most educated, the most uh, influential people that may be doing the work of the Lord at the very end. It will be the ones that God has called and God has prepared for a work. I believe the same thing you can see throughout the history of the Bible. We look at these men of God. Do you think all of them had some great uh, theological training and a great family and everything else? Or did God prepare them through the work of the parents in the church? If that be so, then it's the work of God's church today to prepare you prepare me to prepare our children to give the message to the world at our time. There's so many things that are happening in our world that we can see the end may not be very far off. But we don't need to be afraid. God's church is going to go through. I don't care what happens. As Ellen White said, there may be a number of Judases in the church. There may be a lot of false uh, prophets coming. But is God going to let that stop his church? He's going to purify his church. Through who? Through you and the message and the power of the Holy Spirit through the righteousness of Jesus. It has to be. Otherwise, we're, we're here for no purpose. If we're just waiting here till things get bad enough before he returns, I think he's going to apologize before long for letting it go this long. When you look at the way things are in our world, years ago Billy Graham said if he doesn't return soon, he's going to have to apologize for Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think we're much worse than Sodom and Gomorrah today. But he has a message. He needs messengers. You look throughout scripture, you see those messengers gave a call to the true worship of the true God. To come back. Let God be God. You be his children. Let him give you a message. Let him give you power to speak the truth. Surrender your will to God every day. Ask him to write his law in your heart and see what happens when he fulfills his new covenant promise. That's the only thing that I know of that's going to see us through the end. Surrender of the will each day. Asking God to take your will and make it his. Give it back to you sanctified so that when you go throughout life, the Holy Spirit has given you strength to say no to the devil. And when things happen, Daddy, let's pray. We need much more prayer, I think, than we do. We need family worship. We need 
time to study the Bible and pray. We need to be faithful witnesses to the Lord. But let's look at just a little bit of the story in the Bible as well. So we've seen, as you read your Bible, the message and the messenger are always under attack. When Jesus was here and he began his public ministry, how long did he have? Three and a half years. Was he ever free from attack? During those three and a half years, what did he have to do? Who were the messengers he was preparing? His disciples. Were they educated, well-informed men? No. But think, in three and a half years, he prepared them to stand alone and to stand for him, to give a message and not be afraid to die. It's not a message that's a cruel message. It's a message of hope. It's a message of the power of God to help us to be the loving, lovable Christians that he wants his church to be. Isn't that true? God's not trying to take away our happiness. He's trying to give us true peace and happiness. And so let's let God be God. And pray that the Holy Spirit and the angels will accomplish in us and through us that which needs to be done before Jesus can return. Think for a moment when Elijah was called. What was the condition of God's people at the time he called Elijah? Look at First First uh, Kings chapter sixteen. We're going to look at verse twenty-nine. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa. King of Judah began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And he came and came to pass, as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he made, that he took to wife Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for, the ba- for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Twenty-two years they had to put up with what Ahab wanted. What did Ahab do to help the cause of God? He married an idolatrous idolatrous woman. The daughter of of an idol worshiper. How was that going to help God's church? So here he is, married to a woman who doesn't worship the true God. She worships idols. What lesson can we learn from that? We know the obvious lesson. Don't marry people who don't believe. But I want you to think for a moment what was taking place. Who was Ahab? What was his position? The king of Israel. As such, he was head of state, was he not? He was like the president, the head of state. Who is Jezebel? What does she represent? What does a woman represent in prophecy? A church. What kind of a church was Jezebel worshiping? 
false church. Now you've got the head of state, and what is he bringing into his nation? The worship of a false god. When the state unites with false worship, what do you expect will take place? Corruption, increase in sin. Isn't that true? Nothing good is going to happen to that, to that kind of a union. Anytime church and state unite to promote church, you're going to end up with persecution. I don't care which era you're talking about. Amen. Church and state never produce anything good. Amen. The church has to depend upon the influence of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to the hearts of the people of God. Yes. No power can produce that Amen. except the power of God. And so here you have the nation following, following a false religion. And for 22 years, Ahab kept doing it, and we see the result. So what did God do then? Look at First Kings chapter 17. Verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. I want you to think, because we often we know the story, it's well known. All of you who've been in the church or read your Bibles know the story. And so here you have Elijah giving a message, and was that message difficult to give? In other words, was the message itself difficult? No rain until I say so. Could you give that message? Yes, you could, if you got inspired. In other words, physically, it's not a hard message to give. Walk up to a king. No rain until it's my, I give you my word. But then what, would you ha- what was going to happen? Everything was going to fall apart. So he walked away. We know Ahab wanted to find him and kill him, but God preserved him. So what did he do with Elijah after he gave the message? He sent him out into the wilderness. He sent him to the brook Kareth. And he sat beside the brook Kareth until the rain had stopped and the brook dried up. What fed him during that time? The raven fed him bread and fed him meat. And so all during that time, think for a moment. Here you have Elijah. He's given a message to give. He goes out into the wilderness. What's the purpose in sending him out into the wilderness? To give him faith and trust in God to supply every need that God would ask him to accomplish. He knew that it was going to be difficult when he went back the second time. And so he sent him out there to to contemplate to pray 
and to see God faithfully every day sending him food with the raven, bread and water. And so at the end of however many years it was, about three years, what did he tell Elijah to do then? Chapter 18. Verse 1. came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. So we know he was out there at least two years plus. In the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria, During that time, the brook Kareth dried up and food was scarce. So here, now he's going to tell the king what? He's going to tell him more than what he had told him before. He's saying, you're going to go show yourself to him. (coughs) And so he sends him. But Before he sent him there, as the brook dried up, where did he send him next? Verse, chapter 17, verse 9. Arise, get to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he rose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow woman was there gathering of sticks, and he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, a little oil in a cruise. Behold, I am gathering two sticks that may go and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. So she had how much? How much food did she have? Enough food for one meal for her and her son. I want you to think for a moment, you who are parents and those of you who have somebody dependent on you, if you were down to your last meal and somebody came to you and said, give me that which you have, what would you say to them? Have you ever thought of that? So you have a child that's ready to die, and somebody said, let me have the food you were going to give to your child. Would that be a difficult decision? I think so. Humanly speaking, it would be impossible, would it not, for a parent to not feed their own child. What was God doing? Testing the faith of the woman and proving Elijah to see if he would give the message that God wanted him to give. And so she gave him a little cake of what was left. But God then, we know, fed her until the rain came and the food became prevalent again. So Testing her, would she believe that God could do for her what God said he would do? Would he do for Elijah what God said he would do? Would he protect him in a time of need? 
would he take care of Elijah's needs? And so he went. The thing that I think is going to happen in the end, you and I may be called upon. It's one of the lessons, I think, from the story of Elijah. We may be called on to give up the little that we have for the good of somebody else. Are we willing to do it? Humanly speaking, no. But that's why with a daily relationship with God and the power of his indwelling spirit, we'll be able to say yes. We're not going to be so self-centered and unbelieving that we won't help somebody else that may have greater need than we have. Let's learn from the lessons of Scripture that God's not going to abandon you. Because look at Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14. Because this is a promise for us for the end of time. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with a devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He that walketh righteously and speak uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppression, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes and stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. And what will happen to that person? He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty, and they shall behold the land that is very far off. Is that a promise for us in the end of time? Bread will be given you, and your waters will be sure, and you'll see a land that's very far off. You're going to trust that God's going to take you to his kingdom. Don't give up in despair. Continue to pray. Ask God what he would have you to do to help others be prepared for what's soon to come. We're at that time, I believe, for before it's going to happen in very long. Chapter 18, verse 17. Came to pass, in other words, God sent Elijah to meet the king. Verse 17. Came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled thee, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, prophets of the grove, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. And so here you have 850 false prophets. Who's feeding them? Jezebel. And here Elijah said, bring them to me. Come to Mount Carmel with all of these false prophets. Let's set up altars and see who's worshiping the true God. Now picture yourself in Elijah's shoes. How many are on his side? One. How many on Ahab's side? 450 plus his men and himself. Now, you're going to prove who's the true God before 
this idolatrous king. Can you see why God gave Ahab, I mean Elijah time in the wilderness before he came out to give his message? He had to learn to trust that whatever the outer appearance may seem, God was still going to be with him. It didn't matter how many were against him. Stand for God. See the power of God deliver you. That's for us today. That's a lesson each one of us have to learn. Don't be afraid of by numbers or by the power of those that are opposing. But trust in God. And so then we know that as he called on God, God did, uh, revealed who was worshiping the true God. And then he took his weapon and slew all of those false prophets. You would think after you had had that kind of a experience with God, you wouldn't be afraid, wouldn't you? Thank you. But it's often true that many of us, when we have great victories, also have times after that when our faith seems to fail us. We all have times when we've seen the power of God at work, have we not? Just this week, I was out in the woods working, clearing some brush, throwing it in a big pile, and all of a sudden, some of it caught my glasses. And where does your glasses land if they get clipped with the brush? I had no idea. So I'm praying, and I'm looking in the brush pile. Can't find it. I'm ready to... I had no other pair of glasses to use. What am I going to do? Can I come here and stand here blind before you today? But I, I prayed once again and told God I have to have them. I can't get a new pair today. I stood there next to the four-wheeler in the wagon. I looked down and they were, there they were right on the ground beside the wagon. What does that do to your faith when you see a direct answer from God? But you can't depend on that today for what he did for you tomorrow. Because Satan will come in and try to discourage you to cause you to give up and lose faith. It's a daily battle. You have to die daily to the inspiration from Satan to trust in yourself and to believe that God's always going to be with you no matter what you do. You have to continue to surrender your will to God and ask him to write his law on your heart and he's promised he would do it. Amen. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. He's going to come to you. And so then God was with him and yet he went and he fled. And there's another lesson. Think for a moment. He ran for 30 miles in front of the chariot of Ahab in a blinding rain after he prayed and God sent rain. All night long he ran. Can you imagine running 30 miles in the middle of the night in front of a chariot leading them to the king's home? It would be a difficult thing. And yet he saw God do it. And yet in the morning when the queen threatened him, he ran for his life. What lesson, think for a moment, in every one of these little parts of the story, there's a lesson, is there not? 
in the very end of time, what do you think that lesson is saying to you? In a time of trouble, when there's a great need, you may have to flee for your life. That wasn't the message God wanted to give. Do you understand? But did God forsake Elijah when Elijah's faith failed? Do you, under, you get the picture? If Elijah's faith had not failed, what would he have done right there in Jezreel? He would have protected him right there. And he would have taken him to heaven. But though he failed, God still was with him and watched over him. He's saying, even in the time of trouble, you may have to flee, but I will still be with you. Because he still took him to heaven. Because he knew his heart, and he knew he'd repented of that failure, and that he could trust him. So if you fail, it's not a time to give up. Once you've understood and you've seen, you've experienced the presence and power of God, and then you fail the next day, you don't give up. You keep going. God's still going to bring you through. And so, what do you think was taking place in Israel? Remember, you had Ahab and you had Jezebel, church and state. Jezebel wanted the life of Elijah, did she know? She wanted him killed. But she had no power or authority to have him killed. So what did she have to do? Depend upon Ahab for the power to have him killed. Now think of for a moment even in that. What lesson is that for us in the end of time? When church and state are united... Will church have the power to kill? No. They have to give that power to the state. How do we know that? Think for a moment. I'm going to be open with you. You go to Vatican City, and how big of an army will you see to defend Vatican City? No. No. So when the you read in Revelation 13 that church and state are uniting. Who's going to give power to kill those who disagree with the church? The state. Which state is it in Revelation 13 beginning in verse 11? The United States. Am I speaking error? But the point is, simply, state has to be the power that executes the will of the false church. It's not the church. But church influences the state to carry out its design. The false church was doing that in the days of Elijah. Let's go down a little further. Look in Matthew chapter 3.
Verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Where do we find John the Baptist? In the wilderness. How long had he been there? 30 years. He wasn't out preaching until he was 30 years old. Do you understand that? What was God doing with John the Baptist for 30 years? Preparing him to stand and give a message. What was John the Baptist eating during those 30 years? What's that? Locusts and honey. What was the locust in reality? Huh? Yeah, the, the tender blossoms of the carob tree. It wasn't bugs. So he was eating locusts and wild honey for 30 years. What was he wearing? A leather girdle and a top of camel's hair. Was he dressed elegantly? No. But God had to prepare him to be able to stand unaffected by whatever would come. So 30 years he's out preparing in the wilderness for his task. When Jesus came to earth, how long did Jesus wait before he was to go out and give his message? 30 years. Did both of them have a a message to give? Did both of them have an enemy to meet? Were both of them developing trust in the power of God to deliver them in the face of their enemies? That's the lesson that God was teaching them. Do you think we have a similar lesson to learn today? And remember Jesus, as we said he had three and a half years with his disciples to take the unlearned fishermen and prepare them to stand. They saw so many miracles and saw so many things happen and that God kept praying for them and they learned to trust him. But think, 30 years in the wilderness for John the Baptist. And he comes out and what does he say? Verse 2. Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then he went to Jerusalem and all Judea and all region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruit, meat for repentance. So here he's coming. Who is he meeting that's opposed to him? People from the church church leaders. I'm not here condemning church leaders. I hope you believe me. But the point is, the common people were listening to him. 
church leaders didn't want to hear at that time. And yet, he'd been, pre been preparing for this for 30 years. So when he went to give his message of what? Repentance. He didn't fall back and become afraid and turn away if they began to threaten him. Went forward, but was he speaking this in anger? Was he speaking it and vengefully? Or was he trying to win the hearts of those that were opposed to him? There's the secret of success. Really, anybody can go out and condemn somebody for something they're doing. But to speak the truth in love. And as Jesus gave his most scaling rebukes, what was in his voice? Tears. Tears in his voice. There was no angry accusations that Jesus gave. I don't believe it was angry accusations that John the Baptist gave. They're calling people, you're worshiping the false god. How do we know that? Matthew 11, verse 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare the way before thy way before thee. Verily I send to you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, this is Elijah to come. Giving the same message of repentance, calling people to back to the worship of the true God, with love in their hearts and joy in the Lord in their own experience, trying to get people to turn away from all of the temptations that Satan had been bringing and corrupting the people in the church. So, what did John the Baptist say? Mark chapter 6, verse 17. Let's see if it was any different than it was with Elijah. Mark 6, verse 17. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison. Why? For Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It's not lawful for thee to have thy brother. Therefore, Herodias had a quarrel with him and would have killed him, but she could not. So do we see the same picture as with Elijah? You had the head of the state, Herod, 
You have a woman who is a false worshiper, Herodias. You have Herod marrying an idolatrous woman. What does John the Baptist say to him? This isn't lawful in the sight of God. Would that have been an easy message? Stand before the king and say, you're sinning against God by marrying this woman, taking your brother's wife. God had prepared him for 30 years to give the message. And he gave it without flinching. But what happened to him? Thrown into prison. If you're thrown into prison and you're serving God and you're giving his message and you're there languishing, what would happen in your own mind at times? Am I right? You'd examine your own heart, wouldn't you? Am I right or are they right? But then came the final. Herod had a birthday party. And as the music is playing, his drunken mind is enchanted by the music. And they bring in Herodias' daughter. And she dances seductively before him. What did he say to her? Whatever you ask, I will give unto you unto half of my kingdom. So what did she do? Went to her mother. What do I ask for? The head of John the Baptist in a charge. So John the Baptist was beheaded. Now think again. Is that the same as what we've seen in the past in the life of Elijah? Except Elijah wasn't killed. But here you find a false church, Herodias, her daughter. What would that be? The false churches that are under her. In other words, do we have a church today that calls itself the mother church? Do we have daughters that are doing the bidding of the mother? Does God have a message to give to that church? Is that an easy message to give? I'm asking you personally. Is that an easy message to give? It's not an easy message to give. Those of you who have Catholic relatives... My grandparents on my father's side were Catholics. He was born into a Catholic home. His father, through the influence of a Catholic priest, went over and killed his neighbors in northern Wisconsin because the priest said that neighbors are putting a hex on your family. Yet God had five Adventist families adopt five different children out of my father's family. They all became Seventh-day Adventists. My father left the church about the time I was born. But if it had not been for those families, I wouldn't be here. I'm not saying that's a big loss if you're never, if you're never were here, right? 
but you're grateful when you are here that you are here. But the point is, you can have all these churches that are being influenced by the mother to do their bidding. And in the end, that's exactly what's going to happen. All these little churches are going to bow down to the mother under the influence of who? The mother and the United States combined. Read Revelation 13. The first ten verses are about the papacy. The last are about the United States and that the United States is going to work with the mother to cause all the world to wonder after the first beast. Under penalty of death. So this message that was given us was given in Elijah's time, given in John the Baptist's time. Jesus, he had his 30 years to prepare to give his message. And what did the religious leaders do to him? It wasn't, they got the state, did they not? To crucify Jesus. Again, the church had no power to kill Jesus. They had to call upon the state to accomplish what they wanted done. And that's why when you look at the way the world is right now, the Catholic Church has no power to execute anybody. But they can call upon the power of all the nations to do her bidding. And what were they doing in Sinai not long ago at COP27? coming up with their Ten Commandments of global warming, calling the world to come back to worship on Sunday. Do they have power to enforce that? Absolutely not. So who's going to provide the power to enforce the world to worship the beast? The governments of the world, united under the United States. And I would challenge you, I think I brought this to you one of the last times I was here. At the very end, Russia is not going to be in control. China is not going to be in control. Turkey is not going to be in control. You look at prophecy all the way from Daniel 2 to Daniel 12, the last nation in prophecy before Christ's kingdom is who? Rome. Right? Before God's kingdom, it's Rome. Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, Rome. Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, Rome. Medo Persia, Greece, Rome. And in the end, it is Rome. Given power by the United States to accomplish what needs to be done. That's not, we're not talking about Catholic people, are we? The system that would change the commandments of God. Are you preparing? Is your heart prepared to stand when the threat of loss of job, the loss of ability to feed your family, the loss of a freedom to worship God according to the dictates of your conscience becomes a reality? 
If your will is being surrendered to God every day, yes. If you're asking God to write his law on your heart and fulfill his new covenant promise, yes. Nothing's too hard for God. But it's a daily battle. And if you lose a battle, you haven't lost a war, go back and start over. What did Jesus say? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross off daily and follow me. God is not a man he should lie, nor the son of man he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? If God said he'll do it, he will do it. If he didn't do it, he'd be lying. That's where you find in Genesis 15 with Abraham when he passed through the parts of the sacrifice. He's pledging himself. You give yourself to me and you cannot be lost if you keep doing it. You will not be lost. It won't matter how difficult life may seem. It won't matter how many temptations come your way. God has promised you put yourself in my hands and I will save you. Not against your will. I have to renew your mind be not conformed to this world but be transformed how by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what that is good and perfect and acceptable will of God that's where we're at today we're at that point we have to be willing to stand because I don't think we can go much longer like we're going it's not a threat it's not a scare It's just the reality as you look at the world around you. We can't go on like this. The corruption, the sinful practices, everything is there. Those of you that are my age, who were alive back in the 50s, know of life that was a little more pleasant in general. Today things are not easy for hardly anyone. And yet you're blessed because you will see the power of God at work more than any other generation before you. Yes. Trust. Trust. And what is the message? Revelation 12. Verse 6. This is God's church, Revelation 12, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God. They should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So Revelation tells us that the true church of God fled into the wilderness for how long? 1,260 years. Why did they have to go into the wilderness that long? They would have been destroyed had God not protected them and sent them into the wilderness. So they went into the wilderness. And what was what was God trying to get them to, to gain by putting them out in, in the caves and in the mountains and the, and the recesses of the earth? The same experience that he gave to John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jesus his disciples faith in the promises of God 
And what happens then when that woman comes out of the wilderness? What is her message? Revelation 14, verse 6. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory in, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Another followed, another followed another angel. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, her false doctrines, in other words. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Really, so what's the, the general trend of this message? It's a call to repentance. A call to the return of the worship of the true God. Get rid of the false doctrines that may be in your life. Quit trusting in social media, TV, to give you your message for the end of time. They're not going to save you. They'll never tell you what we've talked about today. But go into the wilderness. Go into your closet and pray. Ask God, show me your will. Give me strength to stand for you when no one else will. We're not here to frighten you. That's why you come together as a church. Some of you come today, you may have had horrible experiences this week. You come to church to be encouraged by one another. Not to condemn somebody because they failed. Say, pick up and start again, right? Don't give in because of apparent failure. Don't feel like you won't be able to make it. Remember, Jesus pledged himself. He will save you. That's what he pledged Abraham. He will deliver you into the promised land. He's not going to let you fall this close to the kingdom if you keep trusting him. But don't fail and turn away to another false message. One that tells you you don't have to stop sinning. You can keep right on sinning until Jesus comes. All you have to say is, I believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven. Would God want one taint of sin in heaven? There may be a lot of people who will be in heaven who don't, who never understood the full amount of sin that was in their existence. But they repented of the sin that they knew and God accepted that as the best that they could do at the time. Amen. Don't become overwhelmed by the amount of sin that you may think you have to overcome. You just start where you're at and see what God is able to do. 
So, so we read in our scripture reading that John told the people what they were to do. Soldiers, what are you to do? Publicans, what are you to do? He gave them simple instruction in their own realm, their own area where they lived. How do you make changes now to rightly represent God? And that's what God is asking you to do. Make changes right where you're at with the people you know and see what God is able to do. And so don't worry about fleeing. Don't worry about how much you know. I have a story I want to tell you. A story from World War One. There was a man who was caught as a spy behind enemy lines. He was arrested, taken to prison, and then they chained him. And with a number of soldiers, they put him in a train to take him to be executed. As their train was traveling to the place where he was going to be executed, the soldiers got drunk. Here he got drunk. He's all chained up. They said, well, if I'm going to die, maybe I ought to die. I'll jump out of this train. If I'm going to die, what does it matter where I die or how I die? So he decided, I'm going to get out of here. So he got up to all the other, the other men were drunk. He, he jumped. Surprisingly, he was very little injured. What would you do if you're covered with chains and you're lying out in the middle of nowhere and you don't know what to do? Started walking. Finally got rid of some of the chains. He ended up a small farmhouse. Knocked on the door and asked the people if they could help him. Who do you suppose answered the door? World War One time. A Seventh-day Adventist family. They invited him in. They invited him to stay. What do you suppose happened in those months he stayed with that family of Seventh-day Adventists? He left in the spring a converted Seventh-day Adventist. Fully converted. He found his way to his home village. What would he do there? preaching. He started preaching to all the people that he could in his village what God had done for him, what he knew about God. Well, it was evidently still a communist country and the authorities heard about it. They didn't like it, so they arrested him. They threw him in the prison, the darkest place you could find in the prison, in the bottom. You couldn't even see people in there. So he's down there for days, doesn't see sunlight. You get very little to eat, like a piece of bread every few days and a glass of water. But he survived. And then the men began to ask him, what are you here for? He'd ask them, what are you here for? Well, I killed my wife. I, I killed my children. I, I did this, I did that. Yes, but what are you here for? Well, gather around. I want you all to gather around, and I'll tell you exactly why I'm here. What did he begin to do? He shared why he was there. So this is my church. 
And he began to preach to those men who were on death row in that prison. And as he told them about the love of Jesus and all that Jesus had done for him and that what was going to happen, and Jesus was coming again, there would be the earth made new, all the stories of the Bible he learned from that Adventist family out in the middle of the country. What did those men on death row say to him? So if I had known this, I would not be here today. And so other prisoners and other cells heard about his preaching. What did they want? When did he hear the preacher man? And so he started preaching to some of them. I don't know exactly how, but... And then he was let out in the open. And other prisoners had heard about it, so they're out in the opening for their little exercise and sunshine, and they're gathering around him, and what are they saying to him? Preach to us. Preach to us. And as he told all of these prisoners in that area what Jesus had done for him, what was soon coming, what was what he knew about God and his commandments. What happened in the heart of those men in that prison? They changed. The warden called the governor. He told the governor, you're going to have to do something here. This man is so good. He's making all these men so good. We're not going to be able to execute him. The governor said, let him go. Let him go. Do you think that same power is available today? The power to change the lives of people that don't know anything about God. Is there a message of repentance to be given? Repentance and love, or repentance not to be repented of? Is there a message of salvation to give to the lost? Is there a message of judgment to come for those who won't listen to the message? Is the chaff going to be separated from the wheat? Yes. But let it not happen out of fear. Let that message be given in love and not in anger. Let them know the judgment of God is simply saying, if you're not going to let me work in your life, I can't take you to heaven. You wouldn't be happy there. The world, universe would not be safe if I took you there the way you're at. And so God is preparing us for that. Every one of us wants a, wants a part of the glory of God. We want to be part of the glory of God when Jesus returns. We want God's church to be filled. We want to see family, friends, and others come to the church. But this is something that I've come And I'm just going to share with you right from my heart at this moment. This is right from my heart. What are we doing for the lost? 
Not a condemnation. Yes. But are we scared to tell the lost what we know? Words. Have you met somebody on the street or in the store and you took time to just talk with them about themselves, about their lives, about God? It's a fearful thing. But if you take time in the wilderness, God will prepare you to do it. Whether it's your own in your own family, you're estranged brothers and sisters, your estranged children, whoever it might be, neighbors, people in the store, he's preparing you to give a message. Mm-hmm. That's what I believed God wanted me to do. I'm no longer pastor of a church. But does that mean I have no message to give? I decided every store I go in, I'm going to search out people next door to talk to. I'm not going to try to convert them the first time. Do you understand? Yes. I'm going to get to know them. Yes, sir. They're going to talk to me about themselves. Yes. And as they begin to talk with me, I'm going to begin to share with them things that I know. I did that with the produce manager in the Kroger store. He didn't really believe in a God the way I understood it. But over the years came to know him and share with him the little I knew him. And as he was re- he was 48 and retiring after 30 years of Kroger's. Figure that one out. But I gave him Christ's object lessons. I wouldn't have been able to give him that if I would not t- taken the time to talk with him. Yes. Yes. Right now there's the produce manager in the same Kroger's. For the last two years I've been talking with him. Finally, I begin to ask him questions. I find out he's had a messy divorce. His wife has taken everything. The children don't want to live with his wife. They want to live with him. And I've asked him questions about God. So do you, do you have peace in your life? No, I've, I've never had peace in my life. Well, would you like to have peace? So I wrote him a little letter and gave it to him with promises of peace from God. And then just recently, I gave him a desire of ages. Said, read this. See if God won't help this bring you a little more peace. He shares with me now things that are happening. Is he in the church? No. But am I trying to share with him some of the things that I know he needs? Yes. Yes. Another man, this one is, I've never had this happen. But every day I go out, I ask God to help me find someone I can share something with. I went into Walmart to the service center, said I wanted to get the oil changed in my car. Man standing in front of me, he was getting some tires put on his car. He left, I went up, signed in. I walked out in the store to wait till they would change the oil in my car. He comes up behind me. He begins to talk. Well, I didn't know what to think of that. So then I turned, I talked with him, and, and then he just kept talking. And then he kept talking. And he kept talking. And he said, and I can't remember what it was, if it was a voice or an impression. He said, as I was standing there at the desk, an impression or a voice said, 
speak to that man. I've never had that happen. And so then we went outside in the store and we talked for another hour. And I asked him if he would read. I gave him a great controversy. I said, before you read this any further, I want you to read the first hundred pages to understand why this book was written. So he did. He said, I can see it all now. I can understand what's happened and what will happen. He was going to come to church, but I'm afraid his wife has told him, you go to that church and you'll be done with us. I'm not sure. But he was so tender-hearted, wanting to know God better, wanting me to help him, and now I'm still praying for him, trying to call him. But different things like that have been happening. Neighbors, talking with them, giving them books. The male lady, giving her books. All of these, it's something that you can do that's not hard. And I would challenge you, you pray and ask God, what can I do where I am to reach out to someone else? Because how many people have you shared Jesus with in the last year that were not people you knew? How many have you brought to church who never knew about Jesus? I'm not condemning you. We've all all been in that situation, have we not? But it's to challenge your thinking. What am I going to do for the lost? I'm going to go into the wilderness and prepare myself so that I don't have any fear any longer. Yes. I'm sharing Jesus with them. And then say, God, you bring you bring me to them. Don't have me stand here and wait for them to come to me. Yes. You send me out to them. Let's see what God is able to do through you. Yes. You're going to be surprised. You're going to be blessed. And you're going to come to church with praise on your lips for what God is doing. Yes. That's all I can ask. Make yourself available to God to give a message to a dying world. And as you give it, there's going to come a time to give the John the Baptist message. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Let him be the Lord of your life. Is that your will? Are you willing to go into the wilderness and pray that God will use you where he sees fit. We're not here to condemn, ever. If we start condemning and pointing the finger, then we're doing the work of the devil. That's all yes. I'm going to say. Yes, we have to be here to work together and uphold one another. If we get scared, you go to someone and ask them to pray for you, so you get rid of your fear. Yes. I've talked longer than maybe I should, but I want you, I want you to have think about having an opportunity to see the power of God work in you and through you to help someone else. That will do more for you than you can ever imagine to see the power of God helping you help someone else. Our closing hymn is hymn number 617. When you find it, please stand.
Heavenly Father, we're your people. You have a message for each one. We want to come to you individually and ask you to instruct and teach us in the way we should go. Guide us with your eye. Let us come back tomorrow or next Sabbath with an encouragement. Someone come back with an encouragement that God was able to work in them to share something with someone in the street, in their home, at work, wherever it might be. Oh, Father, help us all to be faithful stewards. And if it's in our own family, let it be in our own family. If it's in our neighborhood, let it be in our neighborhood, at work, in the community. Give us hope. Help us to not be afraid. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.